The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, in Christ you have revealed your glory among the nations. Preserve the works of your mercy that your church throughout the world may persevere with steadfast faith in the confession of your name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back. Do you even remember what book we're studying at this point? We've been, we've been missing this for so long. Somebody said Hebrews? Uh, we are in Matthew, so if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Matthew chapter 10. And we are going to read verses 17 uh, through 42 through the end of the chapter. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and begin. Jesus said, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother to death. And the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the health house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives him who sent me, the one who receives a problem, excuse me, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. 
Uh, you'll notice that this section of Matthew's Gospel, the 10th chapter, begins with the naming of the 12 disciples. We looked at that several weeks ago. And the subsequent commissioning of those 12 disciples for what we would call a short-term mission. I say a short-term mission as opposed to the end of the gospel when Jesus commissions them for the rest of their lives to go out and spread the gospel throughout the world. And we noticed when we looked at that section, the verse 16 verses, if you will, of Matthew chapter 10, that Jesus gave some very specific instructions to his disciples when he sent them out on that short-term mission. He mentioned five things in particular. He told them where they were supposed to go. He told them that they were to confine their ministry to the lost sheep of Israel. They were not supposed to go into any of the villages of the Samaritans. They were not to go amongst the Gentiles. They were to preach the word exclusively to the Jewish people. We talked about why that was. We said this was ultimately a part of God's great plan for the salvation of the world. But the Jews were God's chosen people. It was through them that the prophets had come. It was through them that the promises and the covenants had come. And ultimately through them the Savior of the world. God had set his affection upon them, and he had a plan for them. That plan was that they would be a light to enlighten the Gentiles, and that ultimately the Gentiles then, as ingrafted branches, would provoke the natural branches to jealousy. And there would be a great revival, Paul says in Romans chapter 11, in those last days of God's ancient people. But initially, Jesus makes it very clear, when his disciples went out on this short-term mission, they were to confine themselves exclusively to the Jewish people. So that's where they were to go. He also told them the message they were to proclaim. The message was that people should repent. Why? Well, it's exactly what John the Baptist had said at the beginning of this gospel, and it's what Jesus had said all along when he began his public ministry. They needed to repent because the kingdom of God was at hand. And we talked about how important this theme of the kingdom of God really is to an understanding of the New Testament and an understanding of Jesus' life and ministry. That was the message that ultimately got the early apostles martyred. The idea that Jesus is Lord implied that Caesar was not. And that's why people needed to repent because a new sovereign, a new king, a new Lord had arrived on the scene. The kingdom of God was at hand. And the kingdom of God was at hand because the king was at hand. So that was the message they were to proclaim. He told them what they were to think about material needs. He said, you are to proclaim the gospel freely. You are not to charge for the proclamation of the good news. You receive this good news freely. You are to give freely. He said, in fact, don't even worry about your material needs. Don't take anything with you. Everything that you need will be provided for you. He told them what they could expect from their audience. He said, there will be some people who will not accept your message. He said, if you go into one village and the people will not receive your message, shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next place. Which implies that there would be some people who simply would not be interested in the gospel message. And he said, you need to anticipate that and you need to be prepared for it. And finally, he talked to them about the kind of character that they should display. He said they were to be as peaceful as doves, but as shrewd or as cunning as serpents. If you think about it, that's exactly what Jesus was like. Jesus was kind and compassionate and merciful, and yet we're told that Jesus entrusted himself to no man. Why? Because he knew what was in the hearts of men. 
In other words, he understood that the people are fickle people, that they are not to be trusted. They can't trust themselves even in their best moments. And yet he came to guarantee that they need not despair even in their worst. Well, that's what we find in the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 10. Jesus commissioning these disciples for this short-term mission. We come now to verses 17 and following. And if you read through this, you almost get the impression that this is simply an elaboration on the instructions that Jesus has already given to his disciples. But a closer look at things reveals that that is not actually the case. What Jesus says in verses 1 through 16 does not automatically flow into what he says in verses 17 through the end of the chapter. This is actually a new section. And if not a new section, it is at the very least an expansion of focus. In other words, in the first 16 verses, Jesus is sending these disciples out, as I said, on a short-term mission. Because the rest of the gospel tells the rest of the time that they spent with Jesus up until the time of his ascension. So he wasn't commissioning them to go out into all the world as he did at the end of the gospel. This was just a short-term mission. They were just getting their feet wet. He had been training them up to this point, so he sort of sent them out with an opportunity to give it a try. But what we have in verses 17 and following seems to be something that is a future mission that is going to be even more intense than the one that they were about to embark on. Now, how do we know that Jesus is talking about two different things? Because here in the narrative, it simply seems as though it just flows together. Well, you'll, number that there, you'll notice that there are a number of chief differences between these two sections. First of all, in verses 17 and following, the ones we're looking at today, Jesus speaks very clearly about persecution. In verse 17, for example, this is what he says. He says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts, and they will flog you in their synagogues. He goes on to say, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Verse 23, When they persecute you. So Jesus is talking about intense persecution. In those first... 16 verses, there's nothing to indicate that the disciples were necessarily going to face persecution. In fact, I would go so far as to argue they probably weren't prepared for persecution. And there's nothing that says when they came back from this short-term experience that they actually had experienced any persecution. The disciples by this point were not mature enough to face persecution. In fact, we're going to go right through the end of Jesus' three-year ministry. And what is Peter going to do in order to save his own skin when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's going to deny the Lord three times, calling down a curse on his own head. Why? Because he's fearful that if he is associated with Jesus, he's going to suffer persecution. And yet in verses 17 and following, Jesus is warning them in no uncertain terms that they are going to face intense persecution. Now, somebody might say, well, that's not particularly compelling. Well, take a look at the second major difference. Jesus, in verses 1 through 16, says that they are to confine their ministry to what? The lost sheep of Israel. Verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of Israel. 
of Israel. And yet when you get in verses 17 and following, what you discover is that Jesus is talking about the fact that they will be dragged before kings and governors. And they will be made to be, what? Witnesses before them and the Gentiles. So you see a major difference there. And then the third major difference is this. There is a reference here in verses 17 and following to a coming of the Son of Man. Jesus says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now what does that mean? Normally in Matthew, when you hear about the coming of the Son of Man, it's a reference to his return in glory. So what I think we have here in Matthew chapter 10 are really two sections. In the first section, Jesus is sending his disciples out on a short-term mission, and he's telling them what they can ex expect and how they should act. But then he's sort of looking over the horizon, and he's telling them, but a time is coming when it will not be short-term mission anymore. You are going to be commissioned to go into all the world, not just to the lost sheep of Israel, but to all people. And it will be your responsibility to share the gospel. And you will face not just apathy, which seems to be what they faced on that short-term mission. They went out and they proclaimed the gospel to some people. And some people listened to it and they were interested. And some people simply couldn't care less. But Jesus is saying, that's what you're experiencing now. But as time goes by and as the kingdom of God advances, you are going to discover that what is apathy is going to turn into persecution. What is short-term calling now is going to become long-term vocation. Now, what's the significance of that for you and for me? Well, the significance of that for you and for me is that we are the heirs of that tradition. When Jesus finally sent his disciples out for the very last time, at the end of this gospel, to be his witnesses in all the world, you and I were called upon to carry that tradition forward. That's our calling. It's not just their calling. That's what we're called to do. Do you realize that? That you are called to be a Christian missionary, to carry on the same work that the apostles, that those 12 were commissioned to carry on in the world? On page 855 in the Book of Common Prayer, in the section known as the Catechism, there is a whole section titled The Ministry. And if you're familiar with the Catechism, you know the Catechism is a whole series of questions and answers designed to teach the faith. And under that section, the ministry, the first question that is asked is, who are the ministers of the church? Now, you're well-trained and you're well-taught. But I dare say you can ask most congregations... Who are the ministers of the church? And the answer they're going to give you is, well, the ministers of the church are those guys that are ordained. It's those people that wear the robes and the clerical collars. They are the ministers of the church. When somebody says to you, well, who's that person walking down the street, that, that tall, saintly-looking gentleman? You say, oh, well, that's my minister. <laughs> but listen to the answer that is given in the catechism. Who are the ministers of the church? The ministers of the church are laypersons, bishops, priests, and deacons. 
And what is particularly significant about that is that the first category of ministers are not the bishops or the deacons or the priests. The first category of ministers, who is it? It's lay persons. Well, what's the next question then in the catechism? Well, what is the ministry of the laity? Now, I, I can almost guarantee that if I said, what is the minister, ministry of the priest or the rector, you'd have all kinds of ideas as to what you think I ought to be doing. <laughs> but the question is, the first question is, what are the, who are the ministers of the church? Ministers of the church are lay persons, bishops, priests, and deacons. What is the ministry of the laity? This is your ministry. Are you ready for it? The ministry of lay persons is to represent Christ and his church to bear witness to him wherever they may be and according to the gifts given them to carry on Christ's work of reconciliation in the world and to take their place in the life, worship, and governance of the church. Now, I'll bet for most people they would have said, well, that's a pretty good description of what the clergy are supposed to do. But the prayer book says that is a specific description of the ministry of laypersons. In other words, that is the ministry of every baptized believer. Your calling is to represent Christ and his church wherever you may be. Not just on Sunday mornings, not just at Bible study, but wherever you may be. Furthermore, you are to bear witness to him wherever you may be. And according to the gifts given you to carry on Christ's work of reconciliation in the world. What Jesus describes in verses 1 through 10 of Matthew is something that applied to those 12 specifically. What he goes on to describe in verses 17 through the end of the chapter is what you and I are expected to do and what's more what you and I can expect to experience in the world. So that's the significance of the section that we have before us today. This is a section that applies not just to the 12, but applies to all believers in all places until the Lord returns in glory. And what's important is that Jesus, just as he outlined what the disciples could expect on their short-term mission, he explains what we can expect in terms of our vocation and calling as believers in the world. What are we to expect? Well, the first thing he says we can expect is outright opposition. You've all heard the expression to be forewarned is to be forearmed. If we're called to go out in the world, what can we expect as the followers of Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and as innocent of doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in the synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my name's sake. There are times in life when we will face apathy. But as the world has become more secular, particularly Western culture, what we're seeing is a rise of not just indifference when it comes to Christian matters. What we are seeing is a rise of intense persecution, hostility, and opposition to the Christian gospel. You may not be aware of it, most of you probably are, more Christians were martyred in the 20th century than in all other centuries combined. 
You know, when you think of Christian persecution, most of us think about the time of Nero or the reign of Diocletian or Domitian. We think of those periods when the Romans rounded up the Christians and had them crucified or when they threw them into the arena to be devoured by wild animals or to contend with the gladiators or whatever it may be. That's, that's what we picture. But actually, more Christians were martyred in the 20th century. And looking around this room, with the exception of one person, we all grew up in the 20th century. So during the course of our lifetimes, more people were martyred than at any other point in the history of the church combined. So Jesus is saying, as time goes by, don't simply expect indifference. If you're going to be one of my followers, what you are actually going to face is intense opposition. The Apostle Paul gives us a little taste of what we can expect as followers of Jesus Christ. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn to 2 Corinthians for just a moment. The Apostle Paul gives us a catalog of the things that he suffered as a follower of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, if the Apostle Paul suffered it, we might very well suffer these things as well. Here's what Paul says. Beginning at verse 23 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, I am a servant of Christ. I have been through a whole host of difficulties, he says. I have endured imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Verse 24, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." That was the life of the Apostle Paul. That was the life that he was called to as a follower of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was telling the twelve, but he was also telling all those who would follow after the twelve, all successive generations of believers, this is what you can expect. You can expect that there will be hostility and persecution. Sometimes it will be merely apathy, but most of the time it will be intense hostility. But... There is a positive side to this. Romans 8.28 says, For we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who called Him, and are called or love Him, and are called according to His purpose. And so Jesus says, yes, you will be persecuted, but the good news is that God is still sovereign. In the midst of your persecution, what will happen is this will actually serve to advance the cause of the gospel. If you are willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, this will actually serve to advance your cause. If you think about it, that was the example of Jesus, wasn't it? When Jesus was up there on the cross on Good Friday, and he was being abused, and, and, and he was thirsty, and the only thing they offered him was vinegar mixed with gall, and the people hurled insults at him. They said, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross, show us, prove it to us. How did Jesus respond to those people? Well, he could have called down legions of angels to wipe them off the face of the earth, but he didn't. He responded to them with 
compassion, with mercy. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He endured that suffering, that persecution, for the sake of others. And when he finally expired on the cross, a miracle took place. A number of miracles took place. But one of the greatest miracles was that one of those hardened Roman soldiers, there at the foot of the cross, when he saw Jesus die in that manner, with words of love and mercy on his lips, he turned to the others and he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. See, the thing that convinced him was the way Jesus endured that kind of persecution. And Jesus is saying, if that's what they did to me, you ought to expect that they're going to do the same thing to you if you're serious about this. If you don't trifle with the gospel, that's what you can expect. But the good news is, if you are willing to endure it, it will actually serve to advance your cause. It will actually serve to advance the kingdom. Look at verse 23. He says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. For when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I tell you, will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. We have a number of explicit examples of exactly how this took place in the New Testament period. After Jesus had ascended and the apostles were active, sharing the gospel in the world, intense persecution sometimes erupted. But that intense persecution often served to advance the cause of the gospel. And I want to give you a couple of examples because I think this is important for us as we face increasing hostility in our culture. Take a look at Acts chapter 8 for just a moment. I know we studied the book of Acts, but it's probably been a long time since we were in Acts chapter 8. Look at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 follows on the stoning of Stephen, one of the early Christian deacons. You'll recall that the man who whipped the people into a frenzy and persuaded them to go ahead and kill Stephen was who? It was the Apostle Paul prior to his conversion, Saul of Tarsus. And so we're told that Stephen was martyred, and chapter 8, verse 1 begins with these words, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And what happened? And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And they were all scattered throughout Judea and Samaria as a result of what? As a result of the persecution. Now what is interesting, as you know, the apostle Paul eventually went and became deputized by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, to go up to a town called Damascus to arrest Christians and bring them back for trial and execution. And it was on that road to Damascus that he had an encounter with Jesus Christ and he was converted. Do you know why Paul was going to Damascus? In those early days, Christianity was confined almost exclusively to Jerusalem. But as a result of the persecution of Stephen, we're told that people were scattered, and a number of them scattered, and they went up to Damascus. But when they went, they took with them their faith. And they established such a strong worshiping community in Damascus that Paul had heard about it and was so alarmed that this Christian thing was spreading, and he was responsible for spreading it, though he didn't realize that, that he felt that he needed to go up there and corral them and bring them back before it spread any further. You see, you can't stop 
the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus was saying. He said persecution will come because we live in an evil, dark world, but the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. Look at the latter part of Acts chapter 8 for just a minute. In Acts chapter 8, verse 26, we have the story of Philip. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, another one of the early deacons, Rise and go toward the south on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading from the prophet Isaiah and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep that was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before it shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life was taken away from the earth. That is that famous passage from Isaiah, the suffering servant. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I asked, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, I find that very interesting. Because this Ethiopian eunuch was a very important figure. The area of Ethiopia covered the whole area from what is now Aswan to Khartoum. It was a large tract of land. This was a very powerful figure. And God just tells Philip to go on the road, going out of Jerusalem, going south to Gaza. And it's there that he encounters this Ethiopian eunuch, this high-ranking official, the treasurer, the chancellor of the exchequer for the queen of the Ethiopians. And he shares the gospel with him, and that man is converted. He even gets baptized there on the side of the road. And presumably, he took the gospel back to his native country. That's the tradition. And helped to evangelize his native country. Now, what I find interesting is that Luke tells us Philip met him on the road going south. Well, turn over a page. And chapter 9 begins with these words. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now here's what I find fascinating. Philip is told, go south on the road to Gaza, and he encounters the Ethiopian eunuch. It's a divine appointment. Paul is so concerned about the fact that there's a Christian community in Damascus that he goes and gets deputized by the Sanhedrin and he heads off to Damascus, which is 110 miles north of Jerusalem. So Paul is concerned that the Christian movement is spreading to the north and so he's going up there to stamp it out. And in the meanwhile, God is taking Philip and leapfrogging him over Paul, putting him on the road south and spreading it in the other direction. See, it was like a wildfire. The more they tried to stamp it out, 
the more it spread. And that's what Jesus was saying to the disciples, and that's what he's saying to us. He said, if you're serious about the Christian faith, understand you're going to face persecution. Why? Because the servant is no greater than his master. But the good news is this, even if they persecute you, the only thing they will succeed in doing, if you're serious about this, is actually spreading the good news. There's one more example of that in the book of Acts. Turn to Acts chapter 13. Now, this is the story of Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. You know the story. They travel from Antioch in Syria down the coast. They take a boat over to the Isle of Cyprus. They preach on Cyprus. Then they travel back up to the continent, and they go to Pisidian, Antioch, and then to three more cities, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Uh, those are the Galatian churches. So when you see the, the letter to the Galatians, it's those churches that Paul established on his first missionary journey. But what is interesting is that when they arrived in Pisidian Antioch, which was the largest city in the region, when they arrived in Pisidian Antioch, we're told that they went into the synagogue and they preached one Sabbath. And we're told the people were absolutely intrigued by that. They were fascinated, so fascinated, in fact, that they followed Paul and Barnabas back to their lodgings, insisting that they come back the next Sabbath and share more of this good news with them. So that, that's the context. But what happens? Well, as you know, no good deed goes unpunished. Verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after meeting of the synagogue broke up, many of the Jews and the devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, verse 44, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds... They were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Look at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed and... The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So here's Paul and Barnabas. They go. They take the message to the lost sheep of Israel. They face persecution as a consequence of that. And so they turn to the Gentiles. And what happens? It only spreads. It spreads to the uttermost parts of the earth. And you and I are here today as a consequence of that. So when Jesus talks about our vocation, our calling in the world, he makes it very clear, if we're serious about this, and the further we get toward the end times, toward those times of great difficulty that Paul talks about to his young protege, Timothy, the closer we get to those times, the more intense the persecution is going to be. The enemy senses that something is about to break, something is about to happen, the trump is about to sound, and so he is going to turn up the heat as much as possible. And yet, if he does, Jesus says, if you endure to the end, actually, you will serve to advance the cause. Back in 2010, Cardinal 
Francis George, who was then the Archbishop of Chicago, made what I think is a prophetic statement. He was addressing the clergy of his diocese. At the time, he was dying of cancer. But he was addressing this convocation, and he was trying to encourage the priests, but also prepare them for what they were going to face. Cardinal George died in 2015, but this is what he said just, what, 10 years ago. He told his priests, I expect to die in my bed. I expect that my successor will die in prison, and his successor will die a martyr in the public square. I expect his successor will then pick up the shards of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization as the church has done so often in human history. Now, those were among his last words spoken to his clergy. He said, as a man, I expect that I'm going to die in my bed, and he did. He said, but looking at the world and the hostility that we are experiencing, he said, I expect that my successor will probably, if he's serious about the faith, die in prison. And he expects that that successor will die as a martyr in a public square. That's the world in which you and I are living. And yet, how does he end? He says, and I expect that his successor will what? Pick up the shards of a ruined society and help rebuild civilization as the church has done so many times before. We would like to be among that generation that dies in its bed. Or we'd like to be among that generation that is picking up the shards of a ruined society and rebuilding civilization. But it may very well be that we are in that generation that will die in prison, and if not in prison, perhaps as martyrs in a public square, if we're serious about our faith. Just think of the hostility that the Christian church is experiencing today. To even talk seriously about Christian matters, to even suggest that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only way to the Father is oftentimes viewed as a trigger for many people. And there are some who would categorize that as hate speech. And if they have their way, pass laws that would prevent it or provide penalties for it. So just as Jesus warned his disciples back there in Matthew chapter 10 what they could expect in that short-term mission, so he was preparing them for what they should expect when he sent them out on long-term mission. And he's saying we should expect the same thing. Persecution. But if we're serious, the persecution will lead to a spreading of the faith. Now you say to yourself, well, I'm not sure I want to go on mission then. Thanks very much. There's not a whole lot of encouragement here. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, when you go, do not be afraid. In fact, what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't simply say, do not be afraid. He says, do not be afraid three times. He repeats it, not once, not twice, but thrice. We read in verse 26, so have no fear of them. We read in verse 28, and do not fear and in verse 31, 
He says, fear not. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Why shouldn't we be afraid? Why should we be fearful in that kind of a context? With that kind of pressure coming against us as believing people, why shouldn't we be afraid? Well, Jesus gives us a number of reasons. One of the things to remember about the Christian faith is that it is grounded in reality. It's an historical faith. And Jesus said there are a number of reasons why you should not be afraid, even in times of difficulty. First of all, he says the truth will out. Ultimately, he says the truth will triumph. Verse 26, so have no fear of them. Why? For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. In the end, Jesus said, the truth will ultimately prevail. Isaiah 55 makes this point very clear. It speaks about the rain that comes down from heaven and, and waters the earth and brings forth fruit and flowers. And God says, so is my word that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will prosper and accomplish that for which I have purposed. So Jesus says, one reason why we continue on in the midst of persecution, in the midst of the fact that the world does not like us and the world thinks we're bad is because we know the truth and in the end the truth will ultimately prevail. So that's one reason we are not to be afraid. We know how the story ends. Second reason, he says, is we understand what many people do not understand, and that is the soul matters more than the body. He says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He says, realize that you and I as human beings were created for what? For eternity. Do you realize that you are an eternal creature? You're either going to live forever with God or you're going to live forever separated from God. But you're going to live forever. <laughs> you were created for eternity. That's one of the reasons why human beings, above all creatures, are fearful or anxious about death. You know, animals don't worry about that. Uh, we had a beloved golden retriever years ago, and he developed cancer. Uh, it's not uncommon in that breed. And um, it was really hard. There came a point where I actually had to carry him down the back steps just so he could go to the bathroom because he could no longer walk down. His joints and so forth were so riddled with this disease. And I would sit on the back step while he went into the bushes and did his business. And then he'd just come back and just lie down and put his head on my foot. And I knew that he was ready to go back inside. And, and one day, one day I, I took him out and he went out and he did his business and he looked back at me and then he simply walked away from me, which he had never done before, into a little patch of ivy and he lay down. And I went over there and I picked him up and brought him back and he crawled back over to that little patch of ivy and just lay down. And I knew something was up so I immediately called the vet. And a friend, a friend of ours, parishioner, was a vet and he immediately came to the house and he took one look at him and he said, he's ready. I said, well, I'm not ready. He said, well, he's ready. And one of the things that struck me was that animal was not anxious. He was not troubled in the least. 
it was almost as though this was just something natural for him. That's not the way we go, is it? We cling to death, to life tenaciously. What does the old poem say? Do not go quietly into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. We don't want that. Well, the reason for that is you and I were created for eternity. We were created for something else. And that's what Jesus is saying. Don't be afraid. They may be able to hurt the body, but they can't kill the soul. You were created for eternity. That's what Martin Luther meant when he said, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves as believers is, do we really subscribe to that view of life? Do we really believe that what matters is the soul? Jesus asked the question, he said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but he loses his what? His soul. I think this is one of the reasons why there is this sort of health and exercise craze in our culture. Now, don't get me wrong, I am not suggesting to you that we should not take care of our bodies, that we should not remain fit, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, I understand all of that. But do you ever notice that people are really obsessed with this? I mean, when I was growing up, we didn't have a gym on every corner. In my hometown, we had a bar on every corner. We didn't have a gym. But people are working out, and they're eating right, and they're making sure that, you know, everything is free range, and all of these various things, and we're making sure. Why are we doing that? Because we want to live long. And why do we want to live long? Because the view, the world view today, is that this life is all there is. You only go around once. So you better make it last as long as you can and enjoy it as long as you can. Well, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Philippians, made it very clear. He said, I'm hard-pressed. I'm in prison, he said. I may very well be executed tomorrow, he said, and I'm hard-pressed. I don't know which I'd rather have. He said, to die is to depart and be with the Lord, which is far better. To remain is to be a benefit to you. He said, but I'm hard-pressed. Can you say that? Can you actually say that to depart from this life and go to be with the Lord is far better? Because very often we don't act that way, do we? We act almost as though this life is the most important thing and we cling to it tenaciously. Well, Jesus says, do not be afraid. Why? Because you know that the soul matters more than the body. He goes on to say this, don't be afraid. Why? He said, because God is sovereign. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Let me tell you something. As you face persecution, difficulty, privation, whatever it may be for the sake of the gospel, nothing is going to happen to you that God has not already seen coming. I pointed out to some people at um, the Pumpkin Hill service this past Sunday, I said, you know, we've all, and you've heard me say this before, we're all in one of three places. We're either going into a storm, we're in a storm, or we've just come out of a storm, but nobody escapes the storms of life. None of us. I was preaching on that storm in Matthew chapter 14 where the disciples were caught up in that storm and they're on the Sea of Galilee. 
They thought they were going to perish. And sometimes we're in the midst of a storm, we think we're going to perish. But you know what's so remarkable about that story is we're told that Jesus was not with them in the boat that, on that occasion. He was up on the hillside praying, and he saw them in their distress. And he came to their rescue walking on the water. If you're in a storm, I want you to know God knows it. He knew it before you even entered into it. And he is the one who is capable of taking you and pulling you safely into the boat, and if not, then helping you to rise above and walk upon the waters. The one who notes even the fall of the sparrow from the sky has numbered the hairs on your head. For some of us, that's easier than for others. <laughs> but the bottom line is, he knows you. He knows you intimately. And there's nothing that you're going to face that he is not prepared to handle. Jesus never said, follow me and everything's going to be wonderful. Follow me and everything's going to be easy. Follow me and life is going to be a cakewalk. What Jesus said was, follow me and I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Follow me through the storms and I will be with you even to the end of the age. So do not be afraid. So we are not to be afraid. We are to expect persecution. But Jesus said there is something else that we need to do. We are nevertheless, in spite of the persecution, in spite of the difficulties, we are to confess Christ openly. We are not to shrink back. We are to be bold in the proclamation. Verses 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. What is whispered in the dark, proclaim it from the housetops. We are to be bold in the proclamation of the gospel. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn to Romans for just a minute. A very important section of Romans, one that I think some people today will find to be particularly challenging. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Paul says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now that's good news, isn't it? What do I have to do in order to be saved? Paul says, really, two things are required. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and you will be saved. Now, for many people, the believing in their heart is not the issue. It's confessing with their mouth that we struggle with, isn't it? Many people have been raised to believe that Christianity and religious matters are private. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I know that many people. I was raised in a family like that. My grandmother believed that Christianity was a private matter. She, was, she believed that she was an intensely Christian woman, but it was a private matter and we didn't talk about it. 
And some of you perhaps were raised in that same kind of background. Well, I want you to understand, if your mother and father taught you that, or your grandparents taught you that, I'm sure your mother and father and your grandparents were wonderful people, but they were wrong. <laughs> because Jesus says we are to proclaim it from the housetops. What does the prayer book say? To bear witness to Christ wherever we may be. If you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. That's one of the reasons why Jesus talked to Nicodemus about the new birth. He said, unless you're born again, you, you, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. What's the first thing that you listen for when a child is born? A cry. Why? Because the cry is indicative of life. If you don't hear a cry when a baby is born, that's a cause for alarm. But when you hear the cry, immediately you begin to ease up. Ah, there's life there. The same is true when it comes to a spiritual birth. There should be a cry from us. It's interesting to note the Apostle Paul didn't begin his public ministry until years later after his conversion. But just hours, just days after he received his sight back, we're told he was out preaching that Jesus was the Christ and trying to prove from the Scriptures that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Now, there was much that Paul didn't know about Christ. It would take him years. He would have to spend time with the apostles and learn a great deal more. But God had done something in his life so much that he could not keep it in. That's what the prophet says. He says, if I say I will speak no more in his name, there is something like a fire shut up within my bones. I get weary with holding it in, and I can't. I must let it out. Is that you today? You have a desire to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. You say, well, I'm, not, I'm afraid of not being effective. God doesn't care about that. You've heard me say before, no one on that last day is ever going to hear God say, well done, thou good and successful servant. What God is concerned with is your faithfulness, not your success. Success is his business. Faithfulness is ours. It's a wonderful story told about Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer was the Bishop of Worcester. He was a dear friend of Thomas Cranmer. Uh, you know that he was one of the Oxford martyrs. He and Nicholas Ridley, who was the Bishop of London, were tied back to back in Oxford, and they were burned at the stake for their Protestant beliefs. Well, Hugh Latimer was a chaplain to the royal family, and on one occasion he had to stand before King Henry VIII and preach, and the text that he had a, been a, assigned for that day happened to deal with, well, marital issues. What you can imagine when you're dealing with Henry VIII puts you in very, very treacherous territory, very treacherous water. And so when he climbed up into the pulpit, he had a little dialogue with himself. He said, oh, Latimer, Latimer, take care, for today you are in the presence of the King of England. And then he said, Latimer, Latimer, take care. For today, you are in the presence of the King of Kings. And he proclaimed the message that the king certainly did not want to hear, but definitely needed to hear. They once said about the great Protestant reformer John Knox of Scotland that he was the bravest man they'd ever seen. He so feared God that he never feared any man. 
Do we so fear God that we do not fear any man? One of the prayers that I love to pray is, God, grant us the grace to fear nothing but the loss of you. So Jesus says, do not be afraid. Why? Because we are to proclaim Christ openly. We are to do it boldly. And we are to love Christ above all others, above your spouse, above your children. Above your children, you are to love Christ above your children, above your spouse, above all others. So we are going to face persecution, but we are not to be afraid. We are to confess Christ openly. And finally, Jesus says, take heart, for you will not lack reward. God will see your suffering, and while you may suffer the loss of all things in this life, one day you will receive that much and so much more. Verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. That is to say, if you receive one of Christ's messengers, you'll receive the reward that he will receive. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul talks about this. He talks about fighting the good fight, finishing the race. And he said, and now I know that there is stored up for me a crown, a victor's crown, which the Lord himself is going to give me on that day. If we persevere to the end, there is a crown. There may be a cross in this life, but there is a crown waiting for us, a victor's crown, which the Lord himself will give us on that same day when he wipes away every tear from our eyes. I want you to picture that in your mind's eye for a moment. The Lord Jesus Christ taking your face in his hands and with his thumbs wiping away the tears from your eyes. And saying those words, well done, good and faithful servant, and giving you the victor's crown because that is the promise that is given to us. Daniel in his prophecy says, we will shine like the stars in the firmament. That's the hope that we have as Christians. What's so powerful about these verses is that Jesus is very honest with us. The Christian life is not easy. It is hard. But it's worth it. And the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. And not only be saved, but be rewarded. Now there is one more thing. And I skipped over this part because it's controversial. But in verse 23, Jesus says this, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now that's controversial because we wonder what in the world does that mean? Jesus is telling us to go ahead and, and be about the work of the ministry and we won't have gone through all the villages and the towns of Israel before he comes again. Well, surely in 2,000 years that has been accomplished. What I think Jesus is saying here is he is applying 
a general principle to a specific situation. What he's basically saying is, get on with the work. The Son of Man is going to come back, and you will not have the time to do all the things that you want to do before he does. So do not tarry in the work. Get on with it. That's what he's saying. Get on with the work. Because the time is short. People are perishing. And the need is great. One of my holiday traditions at Christmas is to read through A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And then we oftentimes watch a version of it with the family. They always do this in the Christmas season. And my favorite version stars Albert Finney. Now write this down. I'm I'm making a recommendation for you for Christmas. The best version of A Christmas Carol in film, in my opinion, stars Albert Finney. It's actually a musical, but it's outstanding. It was done back in the 1970s, but it's absolutely wonderful. And it really sticks close to the book. And Albert Finney, I think, is the best Ebenezer Scrooge that has ever played the part. But there's this wonderful scene where the ghost of Christmas present appears to Scrooge and gives him a warning. He says this. He says, There is never enough time to do or say all the things we would wish. The thing is to try and do as much as you can in the time that you have. For remember, Scrooge, time is short. And suddenly, you're not here anymore. The time is short. Let us be about the Lord's work. And if persecution comes, let us remember that they may kill the body, but they cannot hurt the soul. And as they try to stamp out the movement, the only thing they will do is succeed in spreading it. So let us take heart, and what is whispered in our ears, let us shout it from the hilltops. Confident that those who persevere to the end will be saved, and they will receive the victor's crown of gold. Let us pray. Father, we do live in perilous times. We may die in our beds, but if our children are serious about the faith, they may die in prison. Their children may die as martyrs in a public square. But if we are faithful and we pass on the torch, the good news of the gospel to the next generation, then we can be confident that eventually another generation of Christians will arise to pick up the shards of a broken, shattered society and rebuild civilization as only Christianity can. Grant us the grace, wherever we may be, to be faithful, even unto death. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.